Got to make sure all these buttons are turned. If you have a Bible, I hope you'll turn with me this morning to uh, the 14th chapter of John. Your, uh, your session has invited me to fill the pulpit this morning and this evening and then uh, next Lord's Day, uh, providing the invitation is still available. Uh, I'll be with you again. So uh, I'm going to do something that uh, I really have never done before, or yeah, I've never done this before, and that is I'm going to preach you a, a mini-series of messages, and that is uh, to preach through this 14th chapter of John. Uh, with some of the highlights, not uh, a complete exposition. But um, you remember that these uh, words were spoken uh, by Jesus on the last night of his earthly ministry, uh, the day before he was uh, arrested and uh, tried and crucified uh, on the very next day. And uh, this was uh, this uh, chapter, or these, uh, this chapter is included in that large section of John's Gospel where Jesus includes these uh, last words uh, to his disciples. So in one sense, these are the last words that Jesus uh, spoke to his disciples, or at least a portion of them here in the Gospel of John uh, as recorded for us. And so with that in mind, uh, I'm just going to read the first 14 verses of John 14 this morning uh, as we look at uh, these uh, for the next uh, couple of weeks, Lord willing. Let's remember that as we read the Bible, uh, it's not uh, some man's story, but this is God's Word, and therefore it is true. So it happened this way, and this is what Jesus said and did. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. May the Lord bless us as we study his words this morning. Let's pray to that end. Father, these are the words of Jesus. We treat them uh, as such. Uh, We come humbly before them knowing that we cannot exhaust uh, the meaning, the application, the truth that is contained here. But we pray that the meditations that we do have would be pleasing to you and profitable to the hearts of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When your family members get old like I am, and late one night the phone rings and the CID caller identification says uh, that it's a call from your parents, and one of your parents, you answer the phone and you hear those dreaded words, Dad had a heart attack. How dreadful that can be. What natural anxiety goes along with those words about parents or children or a friend, whatever. You might not know some of the statistics. Estimates are that between 25 and 30 million Americans have one or more form of cardiovascular disease. It's the leading cause of death in our country, including all forms of cancer. Heart disease strikes someone in the United States about every 40 seconds. Over 800,000 suffered a heart attack last year. Many of those were first-time incidents without any kind of warning at all. Heart disease is a serious issue in our country. Physical coronary disease is a health problem, but there's another fact. This is a biblical fact, that heart trouble is the oldest problem of all the diseases, and everybody has it. We all have heart problems. It's a problem that sometimes is brought on by stuff that's going on inside us. Sometimes it's helped along by circumstances outside of us. I don't need to tell you that we're bombarded right now from every side with so many personal, family, national, global issues that it's absolutely difficult to keep track of that, and it causes a problem. Some of you are familiar with this game. I had to make a level surface. You know what this is? This is Jenga. And the idea of the game is to take out pieces very carefully and put them on top in such a way that the uh, rest of the tower does not go over. And so you look around 
for the next possible piece. You take it out very carefully. You put it on top. I won't go through the rest of it. You get the idea. But this is a metaphor for our times. Because many of us feel or think that we live in a giant Jenga world. And at some point in time, somebody, somewhere, I'm not naming names, but somebody, somewhere, is going to make the wrong move and the whole thing is going to come tumbling down. You feel that way sometimes? It's a heart problem. But as a Christian, you need not fear because you know that you live under the hand and under the care of a truly awesome Heavenly Father who firmly holds the whole thing right in his hand so that everything is done exactly according to his purposes. We need not fear that we live in a Jenga world. Nevertheless, frequently, we have symptoms of this kind of heart problem anxiety. Some suffer with it occasionally. With some, it's chronic. I don't know you. I don't know your hearts or your lives, but I know that that painful feeling comes very often even to God's people. True believers who love Jesus, have been redeemed by his grace, whose sins have been forgiven, and yet very often in terms like fear or guilt or anxiety or different forms of stress or sadness or sorrow. The symptoms of those things are many. The the sense of being powerless, the sense of being inept. What can I do that's right? The sense of confusion. And those feelings are often complicated by self-pity or blame-shifting or envy or rebellion or lots of talking or no talking at all nervousness or hyperactivity. Get the picture? And that's the question that Jesus addresses in this passage as he begins to speak to his disciples about their anxieties and their fears. He begins with this simple statement, let not your heart, your hearts be be troubled. And in this chapter, Jesus is going to lay down several very profound reasons, very solid foundations for comfort and the antidote to those kinds of heart problems that we experience even as his disciples in our day. Think first of all with about uh, the context here, the 11 disciples that are sitting still at Jesus' feet at this specific time. Remember, the chapter divisions in your Bible are arbitrary. And so the beginning of chapter 14 is directly connected to the events and the conversation that Jesus had with the disciples in chapter 13. And I'm not going to review all those things, but look back at them. The disciples might begin to feel heart problems rather acutely by the end of chapter 13. They evidently showed some of those symptoms. They were bewildered. 
They had a sense of being abandoned, of being useless, of being disappointed. Why? Well, several reasons are right there. The recent events, the whole Judas thing. What is this all about? I'm sure the 11 thought. He was the betrayer. And then almost immediately, the prediction about Peter. Not a betrayer, but a denier. And then Jesus said, I must suffer. I'm leaving. You can't go with me. You won't be able to find me. You can't come where I'm going. Is it any wonder why their hearts might have been troubled? And Jesus graciously deals with that. What about us? What's the origin of our heart trouble? As I mentioned a few moments ago, usually anxiety, stress from the circum- and stress come from the circumstances of life. Circumstances of life. You ever had the experience that your Bible reading and ordinary life sort of mesh together? Uh, uh, Some time ago, my wife served me lunch, and she caught me because she put in front of me some kind of soup in a bowl. It was unfamiliar soup to me. What is it? Is it good? Will I like it? Will I even eat at it? And so you know what I did. I sniffed it. And then I remembered reading something from Malachi. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you sniff at it, declares the Lord. Don't we often sniff at God's providence? Am I going to like this? Am I going to go along with this? We sniff at God's providence. And that's where the heart problems come from. And that's where the heart solutions are directed. And Jesus begins his description of these solutions in our text this morning. So let's begin with chapter 14. Verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's the context. What's Jesus say? He says, believe in God, believe also in me. This is one of those phrases in the New Testament that is very interesting in the dynamics of the original language. It's given to us in such a way not to confuse us, but so that we'll see the full impact of what it is that Jesus is saying. The word believe is identical in both phrases of the sentence. The problem is that the Greek word spelled pistuate, that's the Greek word, I'm I'm impressing you now, I know one Greek word. Uh, It can indicate a couple of different things in the grammar. So now you're going to get a grammar lesson, a Greek-English grammar lesson. You know that verbs have moods. Mood, the mood of a verb is designed to indicate to you what the speaker of the sentence has in mind. 
So in this case, there are two moods represented here, but the two moods of the verb are spelled exactly the same way, the indicative and the imperative. You probably know those two words. The indicative is an indication of something, a fact, a reality that can be pointed to. The cat constantly loses hair. That's a fact. That's an indicative statement about the beast that resides in my house. The imperative is a command. Brush the cat. That's a command. All right? So the question is, in understanding this particular phrase, do we have here, all right, follow along with me now, do we have here two indicatives, two statements of fact, or do we have two imperatives, that is, two commands, or do we have one indicative and one imperative, or do we have one imperative and one indicative? You got that? All right, I'll try to explain Which is Jesus saying here? You believe in God. You believe in me as well. Two indicatives. You believe in God. You should believe in me. You should believe in God because you believe in me. You should believe in God. You should believe in me. Which is he saying? Well, you see... The fact of the matter is, as I mentioned, that it's not to confuse us, but it's to give us the whole scope of this. In fact, one of the ways that this can be translated is in the form of a question. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in me? You see, this is the the whole thing right here. What's the point? Well, maybe it doesn't make too much difference what the mood is, but what's the point of the passage? What's the central word in the passage? Believe. Faith. Faith is the first solution to the problems of the heart. Faith begins with a confidence in God. God who exists. God who is the creator. God who is, in fact, the sovereign and good sovereign. Who in all his providence of whatever happens is a faithful father. The Lord of perfect faithfulness, righteousness, and provision and protection for every one of his creatures who rules over all of his creatures and all of their actions, especially for his children. You believe that. You should believe that, right? It's an indicative. It's an imperative. An equal confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Redeemer. What do we sing? We sing how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, my priest, my king, my Lord, my way, my life, my end. Do you believe that? You do believe that. You should believe that. Such faith is the beginning of the solution to those heart issues that we face. It's enough to heal the wounded heart. The same hymn, 
the name of Jesus. It makes the wounded spirit whole. It calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. You know, these hymns that we sing uh, in our congregational hymns, they're not just filler to get you to the good part. That's the sermon. No, these are wonderful expressions of the saints of old who have found these important matters of faith and life so true, so meaningful, and so refreshing to the heart, from the psalms to the hymns that we sing. Now notice that the grammar review I gave you, that in either case, either the imperative or the indicative, there's no place for being passive, for being passive. This is the error that so many people make. We have the heart problems with so many of those symptoms, and that's easy enough to acknowledge. And someone might remind us to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, to even grow in grace. And so often we take that exhortation passively. Yes, I have heart problems. I do believe in God, and I'm going to wait for him to remove my worry, my fear, my guilt. And it doesn't happen. Why doesn't it happen? Well, on the one hand, it's absolutely true that God alone is the one who is able to deal with my heart problems. He is sovereign, and in his grace and in his mercy... He accompanies us with His grace. But on the other side of the issue, the active infusion of the truths that I believe of God, putting them into my mind and into my heart, is where the action begins and I can think about it and meditate on it. In fact, if you consider what Paul writes here uh, to the Philippians, it is our thinking that informs our emotions and our will. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. I consider everything lost for the sake of Christ. Paul is speaking of the joy that accompanies our lives as we actively consider the things that God has told us. And when the heart troubles are diagnosed, begin to take active active mental account of the things that should command your consciousness. I am saved. I am, I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ from a life of sin in order that I may truly glorify and enjoy God. I'm saved. Think about this. My Savior once wore a crown of thorns on his head, but now he wears an eternal crown of glory as the one who rules the entire universe for my good. He was here. He's gone now. But what? He's coming back. That Savior of mine. I have loved ones. I have family. I have a new family of the members of the body of Christ to which I am attached. 
the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is still the best news for the world today. And when it is spread abroad by my lips, people come to know Jesus. That happens. I have the freedom to go to the throne of grace to gain real forgiveness when I am guilty, wisdom when I am dumb, strength when I am weak, comfort when I am afraid, joy when I am sad. If our minds were full of those things, that's the first treatment for our heart disease. The bottom line is I live in the palm of the hand of a good, loving, an absolutely sovereign God. Now in our text, John 14, Jesus tells us another biblical treatment for heart disease. The first is, believe in God, believe also in me. The second is, there's a home to go to. You find this in verses 2 through 6, you're familiar with this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We think nostalgically about our homes. I remember getting sentimental for a minute, I guess. I remember 2525 Avenue A in Kearney, Nebraska. I shared a bedroom with my brother. And... uh, In that room on cold Nebraska winter nights, I learned how to play basketball. I taped a shoebox with a hole underneath it to the top of my uh, closet door, and with a tennis ball, uh, I played regularly with Wilt and Bill Russell and Oscar. Some of you know those names. You remember some of the homes that you've lived in. Pam and I have lived in Six homes just since we, quote, retired, as it were. Here's what Jesus said. In my Father's home, there are many mansions, abiding places. This statement is set in contrast, you see, to the fact that I set my mind on places where I have lived in the past or where you have lived Some of you could beat my record, but some of those places have pleasant memories. Some of them have rotten memories for many of us. But there's one place, there's one place away from which the child of God will never have to move again, and that's heaven. Heaven, in one sense, is what Christianity is all about. The covenant the offices of Christ, all of the work of the Spirit, all those doctrinal words that we speak of, justification, sanctification, glorification, the forgiveness of sins, when we talk about the cross of Christ, when we talk about His resurrection, when we talk about the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit, when we talk about the indicative and the imperative, the already and the not yet, whatever. It's all about how it is that God brings us to the place where He is and keeps us there where there are no heart problems 
at all and forever. And it's to this place where there is room for all that everyone wants to go. And of course the question is, how do you get there? How do you get there? Now you see, that's the question of the ages. That's the question of the philosophers, of the imaginations, of the hearts of men, of all the religious. Thomas asked that question there in verse 5. Yet he didn't know that the very person who is the answer to that question was standing right there in front of him. It's not what is the answer, it's who is the answer. And Jesus said he is the answer. There are a lot of famous words said by men throughout history. Et tu, Brute. Anybody recognize that? Four score and seven years ago. Famous words. When in the course of human events, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, plus a few Germans. But <laughs> ask not what you can do for your country. No. Ask not what your country can do for you, yeah, and so forth. One small step for man. But there's no single statement anywhere recorded that's more profound than this one. John, chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I read a lot about this. Most splendid sentences from J.C. Ryle. Observe, Ryle says, how expressly Jesus shuts out all ways of salvation but himself. Now, we could talk about the whole philosophical controversy over pluralism and exclusivism. But those intellectual discussions are not the remedy for heart problems. He is. And how profound this formula is that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way. He is the path, the means, the way home to the Father's house to heaven, to salvation from the curse of sin. The way to that place is exclusively through the redemption and the mediation of Jesus. What would happen the next day is the critical event in all of human history regarding the salvation of the souls of men. Jesus died on the cross bearing the sins of his people. And so there's no need for other helpers. Not priests, not virgins, not saints, not swamis, not Buddhas, not sacred cows or secret forms in the temple of a secret temple. No thing else is the way. Jesus is the truth. 
The root of all knowledge resides in Christ. Knowledge and wisdom come perfectly blended in his person. If you want a devotional reading this afternoon, go back to Proverbs 8 and see how his wisdom and his knowledge blend together as the creator of all things. All biblical revelation points to him. All premises, solid premises, begin with him. All true conclusions are grounded in him. After all, in the beginning was the Word. And Jesus is the Word. He is the truth. Jesus is the life. There is a fountain for real living. Such a life described as abundant, joyful, peaceful, guiltless, fearless, hopeful, loving, unfading, and eternal. One commentator pointed to Thomas Akempis. I don't think it can be stated better than this. Jesus said, follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without the life, there's no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life, true, life, blessed, life, uncreated. Now you can see how if one of the disciples, evidently John was taking notes that night, he remembered these words. These are profound words in the light of what was happening on that occasion. The impact on them would be clear, perfectly clear, one week later when Jesus stood in their midst and said, look at the wounds in my hand, look at the wound in my side. And you see what we have here in this single phrase is the summary of all true and effectual religion. It's true because it meets the standard of answering the right questions. Who can come and bring a sinful people to God without dread of judgment? Who can do that? How is that possible to be done? Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And that is it. To that extent, you see, John chapter 14, verse 6, is not only a declaration, it is an invitation. It is an invitation. To know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is a statement that invites all. It invites anyone to him in faith and to come to him, to the Father, and coming to the Father to come home in peace and joy and rest. Now this evening, Lord willing, we'll go back to some of the other remedies found in the next verses. But for this morning, I just want you to see that the fundamental problems that we have are not headaches. As if you have to attain some certain level of knowledge to come to God. They're not backaches. As if you have to work your way 
by doing something on some external level. The words that invite us here are words that address our real problems, our heart aches. And it's an invitation to those who have never known the fullness of the claims of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth to take upon himself the sins of sinful people. And he died for those sins on the cross. That's the remedy for the true, obje- for the ju- true objective broken heart. But it's also the invitation, not just to those who have known it, have not known it, but it's also the invitation to those of you who this morning know Jesus and yet at the same time are struggling with your own heart problems. You may have another, you may have some utter sense of failure with respect to spiritual matters. But here's the invitation of the Savior to once again realize that it is in His great work of redemption for you that you are given the way, the truth, and the life. And with that as your heart possession, you're on the way home. You're on the way home. You know, one of the biggest problems that the American Heart Association faces is that people are in denial. In denial. I've heard it said that for a good percentage, the first sign of heart disease is a fatal heart attack. That means that many people do not consider the obvious symptoms before they're dead and then it's too late. And it's very sad that the same thing often happens to us spiritually. To not fully acknowledge that I have some heart problems, that I am struggling with a major issue in my life, is to be in denial and to continue to suffer. To think that I'm the only one, particularly in a church fellowship, that struggling is, is naive and it's dumb. It's not a particularly spiritual word, but it's a true word. It's dumb. You're not the only one. There are others who love you and care for you. And to often think, I can handle it. I can do it myself. I'll grow out of it. I'll get over it. It's not so bad. Is also foolish and often proven false. On the other hand, brothers and sisters, The very words of Jesus on that last discourse with his disciples. That's the one true remedy for our heart problems. He says to each one of us on this day, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Come to the Father through faith in him, through faith in me. May our hearts bow to that invitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us. And uh, it's a touching of our hearts and our lives. And I pray that uh, for those who have never known the peace of Christ through saving faith in him, uh, there are probably some, young or old, in the congregation this morning in that situation. We pray that you would touch their 
hearts and bring them to Christ. For those of us who have lived the Christian life a long time, we're in places of leadership, we're in places where we head our families or we work in our families, we're raising children, we're trying to do a good job in the workplace. We struggle sometimes. We pray that we would come to you. As we come to you, reaffirming these great truths that you have given to us, that you would touch our hearts with comfort and peace. To that end, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The words of uh, John 14 have been put into uh, a hymn. It's 116 in your hymnal. Hymn 116.